So we're in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, for these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians that we've been going through, uh, Paul has been presenting this contrast between the wisdom of God, the wisdom and ways of God centered on Jesus and him crucified, the gospel, and the wisdom and ways of the world. And the wisdom and ways of God leads to, causes us to make much of and boast in Christ, to be people who, who love and rejoice in and live for not ourselves, but for Jesus. And the wisdom and the ways of the world cause us to make much of ourself and to make much of man. And in chapter 3, which we began last week, Paul connects this idea to the establishing and the building up and the leading of churches, to what we do together as local bodies of believers. What does it mean? What does it look like to, to build up a church, to lead a church based on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world? What philosophies, what priorities, what means and methods are being used for what we are doing today and through the week as a church? Are they ones given by God, centered on the cross of Christ, or are they ones that we arrive at ourselves? And a lot of the language throughout this chapter 3 uh, is about church leaders, is about communicators of the gospel, ministers, teachers, preachers, those who lead the church. So before we get into today's passage, I just want to show the relevance of this passage to you, whether, you not, whether or not you are in or ever see yourself in some form of leadership in the church, okay? So for one, Paul is writing this letter to, uh, of 1 Corinthians, that we call 1 Corinthians, um, to the whole church, right? It's directed at the Corinthians, the Christians in the city of Corinth. It's not just to the leaders. And so Paul assumes that the work of building up the church, according to the wisdom of God, is something that the whole church is tasked with, has responsibility towards. And on the flip side, he assumes that attempts to downplay and disregard God's wisdom, God's ways, the cross, and find ways of man to build the church are something that not only the leaders of the church are susceptible to, but everyone. So for example, if you think that a church is primarily built through what entertains and attracts people in our world, technology, marketing, instant gratification, emotional manipulation, smoke machines, strobe lights, <laughs> just giving people what they naturally desire, then you will push your church to adopt those things, to prioritize those things, and when they don't, go find one that does. Likewise, if you think a church is primarily built through the communication of God's word and a call to live that out faithfully in community under the lordship and the grace of God and Jesus, then you'll push your church to prioritize those things. And when they don't, go find one that does. So to put it simply, there are lots of ways to build a church. There are lots of ways to build a church using the wisdom and methods and means and priorities of the world. And certainly we are not immune to this. Some are overt and we can easily point them out, but many more are um, subtle. And our guarding against this is, is not just the work of the leaders, of the pastors, but each of us. 
So we're going to work through this passage today. It tells us three things uh, that we'll kind of use to work through it. First, how to build a church with God's wisdom. Second, why it matters that we build a church with God's wisdom. And then third, we'll see our motivation to build a church with God's wisdom rather than the world's. So first, how can we build a church with on the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of man? Starting at verse 10. So 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if you were here last week, we, you saw that um, the previous section, Paul used an analogy of gardening to talk about the work of the church and the building up of disciples. Um, here, actually, at the verse just before this, he kind of shifts the metaphor um, to, this, uh, to a building, to construction. There are ways to build something. There are ways to make a structure that make it last and there are ways to build a structure that make it crumble over time. And the important thing here is that you may not always be able to tell the difference right away, especially if you don't know what you're looking for. Two homes, for example, may, may look similar until you start peeling back the drywall or inspecting the, the foundation. They may look the same, but one is built to last and one will crumble over time. Similarly with the church, there are ways to build on a solid foundation and with materials that last, that prove genuine, and there are ways to build that are faulty and that crumble over time. So, how are we to build a church then? How can we build a church that endures? Well, there's only one place to start, and Paul says very clearly, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what is this foundation? Well, if you connect it to the larger context here, um, we've seen a lot of phrases and words that kind of spell this out. This is the cross of Christ. This is the gospel. This is Jesus Christ and him crucified. This, this message that we proclaim and by which we are found to be in Christ and to have everything that is in him, forgiveness and cleansing and hope and new life, and we become people that make much of God rather than ourselves. And so the foundation of the church, the one thing necessary, without which everything else crumbles, is the teaching and preaching of the gospel, our clinging to Christ and him crucified, and our making much of him. A church built on anything else isn't a church. A church where this message gets shoved in the background, another message has become more important, isn't a church. A couple of examples, um, both on the, the right and left of the political and social spectrum. So there are churches which market themselves as social justice churches. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about justice. Justice is a very biblical concept, and uh, it is something that we as Christians should care for. But when the focus of a church is, is a particular issue of justice that may very well be an implication of the gospel, and the gospel gets shoved in the back, 
the foundation begins to crumble. On the other side, there are many churches rebranding themselves now as patriot churches. As you can probably imagine, taking a certain stance towards the government. Now again, there is certainly room within Christianity to talk about what our stance towards the government should be. There are conversations, there is biblical themes and ideas and truths that apply to that. But to make a certain stance toward the government, the focus of your church, the reason people should be drawn to your church, is to build a foundation on something other than the gospel. And it is to build unity and excitement around something other than the gospel. Now, those are kind of two obvious examples, but there are many more subtle ways that we do this that we are certainly not immune to. Um, I came across a quote from a pastor in Texas recently. He, he said, Beware of whatever draws people to your church that's not biblically essential. What's trendy now will change. The demographics of your community will shift. If you're not careful, your members will be a shrinking pool of people who are committed to a particular set of antiquated preferences because you never discipled them not to be. The better you nail a vibe that draws people, the harder you'll work, you'll need to work to teach them that's not what they need most. The more your church's expressions of worship line up with what people instinctively like, the more you'll need to clarify that those non-essentials really are non-essential. Uh, this is why all of our worship from now on is going to be polka, <laughs> just so it's clear you're not coming for the worship. I kid. No, we, like every church, are going to have a certain vibe. It's inevitable. A certain flavor, a certain presentation. But are we trusting in that to draw people in? Are we subtly communicating that our specific presentation and focus and priorities and appearance and programs, besides the gospel and the word of God, are a better foundation, are more effective and powerful to draw people in and change them than the gospel. Now, a building needs a good foundation, but then that foundation also needs a good structure built on it. And the problem in Corinth wasn't that the foundation wasn't good. I mean, Paul himself was the one who planted this church on the word of Christ and him crucified. The problem in Corinth was that they assumed that from that point on, it didn't matter what the church did, what the church believed, how the church grew and had its place in society. And so they were buying into worldly wisdom in order to become more influential and respectable and, and all of this. And so Paul goes on in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through, as through fire. So here's what Paul is saying. There are ways to build a church 
to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ that last, that endure, that bear true fruit, that prove genuine in the end, um, represented here by uh, gold, silver, precious stones, these things that sustain through fire. And then there are ways to build that may look good, that may look sturdy and lasting, that may be easier to do, but will not stand up on that day. Represented here by wood, hay, and straw, things that the fire burns. Now, the fire here that tests and reveals um, is, is surely metaphorical. This is not actual fire, in this metaphor at least, but it's getting at the idea of burning away whatever is false, whatever is temporary, uh, whatever is not true. That day, the fire of that day, makes clear the true state of things. Is this a true church or not? Is this a ministry built on what lasts, or does it just appear that way for now? And this is true with so much of the Christian life, right? Are the true assessment of things, how things actually are, is not always how they look right in front of us or how they feel. The true state of things is not always how we are received and accepted in the world or what sort of greatness and respect and power we have. No, the true assessment of things, how things actually are, is how God sees them, is how they will be revealed and tested to be on that day. What God says is real and true and right is actually what is real and true and right, whether or not we see it right now, whether or not everyone agrees with that. And if we are confident of this, if we live by faith, if we live for the glory and vindication ultimately of God and his people, we will be less tempted to adopt and use the ways and the wisdom and the means of man to build the church, to bring about success and greatness and power and influence. Rather, we will take what is given to us, live faithfully for God and his approval, and trust that in the end, that we will be vindicated. That will be enough. Now, throughout this section here, and we're about to see this again, there are some pretty intense warnings that kind of shock us. But in the next couple of verses, we understand some of the reason for this. And so the second question, why does it matter how we build a church? Why does it matter that we use God's wisdom and God's means? Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Okay. Pretty intense there. So let's make sure we understand what this is saying. First of all, the word you throughout this passage is plural. You might have a little note. There might be a little uh, note at the bottom of your page there that says you throughout verses 16 and 17 is plural. So this is not talking about 
as is sometimes presented, your body being a temple of God. That's true, and Paul's actually going to say that in a few more chapters. This is about the this is about the church and about taking care of the church. You, or we could get southern and just say y'all, you guys are the people of God. And then the temple, what does it mean to be the temple? What does it mean that we are the temple of God? Well, the, the Jewish temple before Jesus uh, was where God dwelt among his people. It was the place that God's people came to draw near to God, to worship God, where priests made sacrifices to atone uh, for the people's sin, or at least communicate God's desire to atone for people's sin. Today, there are no temples like this. This church building is not a temple in the the way that the Old Testament temple was. Uh, Rather, the people of God are the temple of God. God. God's spirit, God himself, dwells among us. His kingdom, his reality and presence, his wisdom is seen among us as we live among one another, as we go out into the world, as we communicate the gospel, as we practice communion and baptism and proclaim God's word, God's forgiveness and and atonement through Jesus is, is communicated. It's true that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But it's also true and Jesus says that he dwells in a, in a special, unique way among his people, among the church, among local bodies of believers. And so the reason it matters how we build a church, the reason it matters how we make disciples and, and do the work of ministry is because the church is not ours. It's God's. The church belongs to God. It's indwelt by God's spirit. It's not some human invention that we can just kind of figure out how to do it best and figure out what the end goal is and kind of reverse engineer getting there. It's all been laid out to us, both the goal and the means. In other words, the reasons for such a strong warning here about towards those who would destroy the church is because God loves the church. He's jealous for the church, just as he was jealous for his people in the Old Testament. He is jealous for his church today. And he will hold accountable those who destroy it. Now, we can probably easily think of various ways to destroy a church, and sadly, we have seen various ways that churches can be destroyed through abuses of power, through sexual sin, through dishonesty, through false teaching, through mishandling of finances. And those are all certainly real and serious ways to destroy a church. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. And it's telling that what Paul is talking about here with using such an extreme warning is not really on our radar nearly as much as those things. And so again, this is about adopting the wisdom and ways of the world rather than God's wisdom, using our own wisdom and ingenuity to build the church rather than relying on God and his ways. And it should give us pause 
that Christians today, including ourselves, seem to be much less able to recognize or much less concerned about this danger than all the other dangers to the church. We are very capable of recognizing that, that list that I just went through, and that's good. Those things are an affront to God's glory and to the health of the church. But we are not very discerning about what gives glory to man rather than God. We are not very discerning about the ways that, and the evil of trusting in ourselves and our wisdom and our ability and our efforts where we should be trusting in God. I mean, to just make this obvious, what will make the news is that list of things that I just went through. What will not make the news is churches making much of and trusting in and boasting in themselves rather than God. Those will often be put forward as great examples of the power of churches and ourselves. One commentator says, it is unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But at the final judgment, all such building will be shown for what it is, something merely human with no character of Christ or his gospel in it. And so do our lives, does our church, do our ministry efforts make much of Christ and him crucified as the foundation and as the continuing work? Or do we kind of embarrassingly shove that in the background? To put it another way, are, are we willing to embrace weakness and smallness and insignificance and ridicule and persecution if it means, and for the sake of trusting in Christ and his wisdom and his ways, rather than our own? Now, Paul doesn't end this section there with this dire warning. But he ends with a motivation of grace, of what is already ours as believers in Christ. So third, final question, what motivation do we have to build a church with God's wisdom? We'll finish out section, uh, chapter 3. Let, starting at verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Let, so let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, it may not be readily apparent what this passage is saying or how it connects to the rest of, of what we've seen, although Paul does use a lot of the same language and words here, so we know it does connect. Um, I've certainly felt that reading through this many times. Like, what is the flow of the argument here? So let me kind of unpack this. Recall that the Corinthians were identifying themselves with various 
teachers and communicators of the gospel. They were saying things like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter or Cephas. And they were trying to find their identity and their worth by aligning themselves with these different teachers. They were perhaps not content with a crucified Messiah, only if they could say, well, I'll go with this person. He, he's acceptable, he's respectable in this world. I'll, I'll confess Christ as long as it is the Christ of Paul. And here, Paul turns the issue on its head. He says, you already have everything. You already have everything you need now and into eternity. In Christ, you don't need to go out and find an identity and align yourself with this powerful individual or this impressive movement or church. You already have everything you need. You are loved and secure. You have a firm hope. Because you belong to Christ, nothing has power over you. Life, death, present, future no longer has any power over you and can no longer define who you are. Even Paul and Apollos, who you're identifying yourself with, are already gifts of God for your benefit. So here's the big idea. As Christians, we don't need to strive incessantly for approval and for recognition and respect. Always just trying to secure our identity and our worth. We don't need to clamor about for power and influence. We don't need to match up as to, to the world's understanding of greatness and influence and power, either as individuals or as churches. All things are ours. In the words of Psalm 118, we can say, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or of Paul in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And what this does is not make us arrogant and haughty. This gives us a humble confidence that sustains us through all things. We can say, I, I have everything I need. God is good. He is my shepherd. He will lead me and, and give me all things I need. He will care for me. He will vindicate me in the end. And no amount of rejection or dismissal or persecution or weakness now can affect that. No amount of being thought foolish or weak or insignificant or ignored or out of touch can affect that. No dismissal by the world can touch the vindication of God on that day. You are Christ's. And because of who he is and what he has done, that is to be enough. You are Christ's. That's your identity. That's your security. And, and this is to be the foundation, not just of us individually, but also of our church, of churches. This is the, the message and the means that we build our foundation on. Christ is the message and the means that we build our foundation on. And living for him is the goal. That's the whole goal of the gospel. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Live for him, make much of 
him. Find him to be better than anything else. Let's pray.